Chapter 11, Part 2 of History of Philosophy This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Philosophy by William Turner The Aristotelian doctrine of causes is a synthesis of all preceding systems of philosophy. The earlier Ionians spoke generically of cause. The later Ionians distinguished material and efficient causes. Socrates, developing the doctrine of Anaxagoras, introduced the notion of final cause. Plato was the first to speak of formal causes, unless the Pythagorean notion of number may be regarded as an attempt to find a formal principle of being. Thus did the generic notion of cause gradually undergo differentiation into the four kinds of cause. Aristotle was the first to advert to this historical dialectic of the idea of cause, and to give the different kinds of cause a place in his doctrine of the principles of being. Consequently, the Aristotelian doctrine of cause is a true development, a transition from the undifferentiated to the differentiated, and nowhere do we realize more clearly than in this doctrine of cause that Aristotle's philosophy is the culmination of all the philosophies which preceded it. According to Aristotle, metaphysics is rightly called the theological science, because God is the highest object of metaphysical inquiry. For although we may in our analysis of the principles of being descend to the lowest determination, or rather to the lack of all determination, materia prima, we may turn in the opposite direction, and by following the ascending scale of differentiation, arrive at the notion of pure actuality, of being in the highest grade of determinateness. Aristotle, in his proofs of the existence of God, did not set aside the teleological arguments of Socrates. Devoted as he was to the investigation of nature, and especially to the study of living organisms, he could not fail to be struck by the adaptation everywhere manifest in natural phenomena, and particularly in the phenomena of life. He recognized, however, that the teleological is not the strongest argument for the existence of a supreme being. Accordingly, we find him establishing the existence of God by means of proofs more properly metaphysical than was the argument from design. He argues, for example, that although motion is eternal, there cannot be an infinite series of movers and moved. There must, therefore, be one, the first in the series, which is unmoved, the proton kinun akineton. Again, he argues that the actual is, of its nature, antecedent to the potential. Consequently, before all matter, and before all composition of actual and potential, pure actuality must have existed. Actuality is, therefore, the cause of all things that are, and since it is pure actuality, its life is essentially free from all material conditions. It is the thought of thought, noesis noesios. To the question, what does Aristotle understand by the primum movens immobile and the actus purus, the answer seems to be that by the former of these expressions he meant something other than the supreme being.
In the physics, where he speaks of primum mobile, or rather of the prima movensia non mota, he describes the first being as the first in the order of efficient causes, an intelligence, the primum celum. This, which is moved by the sight of the supreme intelligence of God, not therefore by any efficient cause, but by a final cause only, sets in motion the whole machinery of efficient causes beneath it. In the metaphysics, however, our philosopher pursues his investigation into the realms beyond the first heaven, and finds that the intelligence which moves by its desirability the soul of the first heaven is the intelligence of intelligence, pure actuality, God. This is the interpretation of St. Thomas, who, while he regards God as the immediate efficient cause of the first motion of the universe, interprets Aristotle to mean that the first intelligence moves merely by the desire which he inspires, drawing towards him the soul of the first heaven. And it is natural to expect that in the philosophy of Aristotle there should be a supreme in the physical order as well as a supreme in the metaphysical order, that the metaphysical concept of first intelligence should complete and round out the physical concept of a first mover. God is one, for matter is the principle of plurality, and the first intelligence is entirely free from material conditions. His life is contemplative thought, neither providence nor will is compatible with the eternal repose in which he dwells. Nevertheless, Aristotle sometimes speaks of God as taking an interest in human affairs. The truth is that Aristotle's idea of God was, like Plato's, far from being a clear or even a coherent concept. Aristotle was content with deducing from his philosophical principles the idea of a supreme self-conscious intelligence, but he had no adequate conception of the relation between self-consciousness and personality. It was left for Christian philosophy to determine and develop the notion of divine person. We find the same indefiniteness in Aristotle's account of the origin of the world. The world, he taught, is eternal, for matter, motion, and time are eternal. Yet the world is caused. But how, according to Aristotle, is the world caused? Brentano believes that Aristotle taught the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, and there can be no doubt that St. Augustine and St. Thomas saw no contradiction in maintaining that a being may be eternal and yet created. The most conservative critics must grant that while Aristotle does not maintain the origin of the world by creation, he teaches the priority of act with respect to potency, thus implying that since the first potency was caused, it must have been caused ex nihilo. His premises, if carried out to their logical conclusion, would lead to the doctrine of creation. Lowercase b. Physics. Physics, the study of nature, considers existence not as it is in itself, but so far as it participates in movement. Kinesios metechi. Nature includes everything which has in itself the principle of motion and rest. The works of nature differ from the products of art, 
because while the latter have no tendency to change, their originating principle being external to them, nature is essentially spontaneous, that is, self-determining from within. Nature does not, however, develop this internal activity except according to definite law. There is no such thing as accident or hazard. Quote, Nature does nothing in vain. Nature is always striving for the best. End quote. Thus, although Aristotle expressly rejects the Platonic idea of a world soul, he recognizes in nature a definite teleological concept, a plan of development, to which the only obstacle is matter. For matter it is that, by resisting the form, forces nature, as it were, to be content with the better in lieu of the best. The striving of nature is, therefore, through the less perfect to the more perfect. Space, topos, is neither matter nor form. It is not the interval between bodies. It is the first and unmoved limit of the enclosing as against the enclosed. That is to say, the surface of the surrounding air, water, or solid substance, which is immediately contiguous to the body said to be in space, and which, though it may change, is considered as unmoved because the circumscribed limits remain the same. Particular space is, therefore, coterminous with extended body and space in general is coterminous with the limits of the world. Space is actually finite, yet potentially infinite, inasmuch as extension is capable of indefinite increase. Time, chronos, which like space is the universal concomitant of sensible existence, is the measure of the succession of motion. Arithmos kinesios katatoproteron kai hysteron. The only reality in time is the present moment. In order to join the past and the future with the present, that is, in order to measure motion, mind is required. If there were no mind, there would be no time. Movement, kinesis, is the mode of existence of a potential being becoming actualized. He tu dynami ontos entelechia he tu yuton. Motion does not require, nor does it postulate, a vacuum, since we may imagine that another body leaves the space which the moving body enters. Besides substantial change, in which matter is the substratum, three kinds of motion are recognized by Aristotle, quantitative, qualitative, and spatial, fora. In his Stoichiology, Aristotle adopts the four elements, or radical principles, which Empedocles introduced. He teaches, however, that the celestial space is filled with a body different from the four elements. This seems to be the part assigned by him to ether. Ether, then, is neither a fifth element entering with the other four into the constitution of the terrestrial world, nor, as is sometimes maintained, an undifferentiated substratum, like the apiron of Anaximander, from which the four elements originated. It is the constituent of celestial bodies. 
The natural motion of ether is circular. That of the other elements is upward or downward, according as they are naturally endowed with lightness or with heaviness. It is hardly necessary to remark that until Newton's time there existed the belief that each particular body moved towards its own place, upward or downward, in virtue of the light or heavy elements which it contained. Aristotle's astronomical doctrines were not in advance of the notions of the age to which he belonged. The earth, the center of the cosmic system, is spherical and stationary. It is surrounded by a sphere of air and a sphere of fire. In these spheres are fixed the heavenly bodies, which daily revolve round the earth from east to west, though seven of them revolve in longer periods from west to east. Outside all is the heaven of the fixed stars, the Protos Uranos. It is next to the deity who imparted to its circumference a circular motion, thus immediately putting in motion the rest of the cosmic machinery. Aristotle agrees with Plato in teaching that the first heaven, like all the other heavenly bodies, is animated. It is in his biological doctrines that Aristotle shows how far he excels all his predecessors as a student of nature. When we consider the difficulties with which he had to contend, he never dissected a human body and probably never examined a human skull. He did not in any adequate sense dissect the bodies of animals, although he observed their entrails. When we remember that he was obliged to reckon time without the aid of a watch and to observe degrees of temperature and atmospheric changes without the aid of a thermometer or a barometer, we realize that the words of superlative praise in which Cuvier, Buffon and others speak of him as a naturalist are far from being undeserved. His mistakes are due to conditions which limited his power of personal observation. Despite these limitations, he did observe a great deal and observed accurately, discussing, classifying, comparing his facts before drawing his conclusions. His Histories of Animals, for example, is a vast record of investigations made by himself and others on the appearance, habits, and mental peculiarities of the different classes of animals. Life is defined as the power of self-movement. The principle that all action is development applies here as elsewhere in nature. Everywhere in the world of natural phenomena there is continuity. Life and its manifestations offer no exception. Non-living matter gives rise to living things. The sponge is intermediate between plants and animals. The monkey, pithecoi, keboi, kynokephaloi, is intermediate between quadrupeds and men. The lower animals are divided into nine classes. Viviparous quadrupeds, oviparous quadrupeds, birds, fishes, whales, mollusks, malacostrica, testacea, and insects. Of these, the first five classes are blood-possessing, the latter four being bloodless. In his anatomical studies, he divided organs into homoiomere, made up of parts which are like the whole organ, and anamoiomere, made up of parts which are unlike the whole, 
as the hand is made up of the palm and fingers. Digestion and secretion are the results of a cooking process. The soul is the principle of that movement from within which life has been defined to be. It is the form of the body. Psychestin entelechia heprote somatos physicu dynami zoen echontos. And its relation to the body is generically the same as that of form to matter. Soul, then, is not synonymous with mind. It is not merely the principle of thought. It is the principle of life. And psychology is the science of all vital manifestations, but more particularly of sensation and thought. Thought is peculiar to man. But since in the hierarchy of existence the more perfect contains the less perfect, the study of the human soul includes all the problems of psychology. What then is the human soul? It is not a mere harmony of the body, as some of the older philosophers taught. It is not one of the four elements, nor is it a compound of the four, because it exhibits powers of thought which transcend all the conditions of material existence. In no sense, therefore, can it be said to be corporeal. And yet it is united with the body, being, according to its definition, the form of the body. For the body has mere potency of life. All the actuality of the body comes from the soul. The soul is the realization of the end for which the body exists, the totuhenika of its being. Soul and body, although distinct, are one substance, just as the wax and the impression stamped upon it are one. It is worthy of note that, as in metaphysics Aristotle distinguishes without separating the universal from the individual, so in psychology he maintains on the one hand the distinction and on the other the substantial unity of soul and body in man. The soul, the radical principle of all vital phenomena, is one. Still, we may distinguish in the individual soul several faculties, dynamis, which are not parts of the soul, but merely different phases of it, according as it performs different vital functions. The soul and its faculties are, to use Aristotle's favorite comparison, like the concave and the convex of a curve, different views of one and the same thing. The faculties of the human soul are 1. Nutritive, Threptikon 2. Sensitive, Aesthetikon 3. Aperitive, Orectikon 4. Locomotive, Kinetikon and 5. Rational, Logikon Of these, the sensitive and the rational faculties claim special attention. Sensation is the faculty by which we receive the forms of sensible things without the matter, as the wax receives the figure of the seal without the metal of which the seal is composed. This form without the matter, eidos asteton or typos, is what the schoolmen called the species sensibilis, it differs essentially from the effluxes of which Empedocles spoke, for these latter are forms with matter.
Besides, the Aristotelian typos is not like the efflux a diminished object, but a medium of communication between object and subject. Sensation is a movement of the soul, and like every other movement, it has its active and its passive phase. The active phase is what we call the stimulus. The passive phase is the species. Now, the active and passive phases of a movement are one and the same motion. The species, therefore, is merely the passive phase of the stimulus, or the operation of the object, as Aristotle calls it. This is the explicit teaching of the treatise De Anima. For example, Hede tu aiste tu energia kai tes aestesius, heote menesti kai mia, todeinai ut autonautais. Aristotle distinguishes five external senses, to each of which corresponds its proper object, esteton idion. Besides objects proper to each sense, there are objects common, koina, to several senses, such as movement, and there is the sensibili per accidents, or inferential object, katasum bebekos, such as substance. Among the internal senses, the most important is the common or central sense, aestheterion koinon. By it we distinguish the separate communications of the external senses, and by it also we perceive that we perceive. It has its seat not in the brain, but in the heart. Having no idea of the function of the nerves, Aristotle naturally regarded the veins as the great channels of communication, and the heart as the center of functional activity in the body. Moreover, he observed that the brain substance is itself incapable of responding to sensation stimulus. In addition to the central sense, memory and imagination are mentioned by Aristotle as internal senses. Imagination as a process, fantasia, is the movement resulting from the act of sensation. As a faculty, it is the locus of the pictures, phantasmata, which are the materials of which reason generates the idea. Without the phantasm, it is impossible to reason. Noein ukestin aneo phantasmatos. Intellect, nous, is the faculty by which man acquires intellectual knowledge. It differs from all the sense faculties in this that while the latter are concerned with the concrete and individual, it has for its object the abstract and universal. It is well called the locus of ideas, says Aristotle, if we understand that it is the potential source of ideas, for in the beginning it is without ideas, it is like a smooth tablet on which nothing is written. We must always bear in mind this twofold relation of intellect to sense, namely, distinction and dependence. The process by which the intellect rises from the individual to the universal has already been described in part. It is a process of development. The material on which the intellect works is the individual image, phantasm, or the individual object. The result of the process is the intelligible form, or idea, and the process itself is one of unfolding the individual 
so as to reveal the universal contained in it. The intellect does not create the idea. It merely causes the object which was potentially intelligible to become actually intelligible. Quote, in the same way as light causes the potentially colored to become actually colored. End quote. The expressions developing, unfolding, illuminating are of course metaphorical. What really takes place is a process of abstraction, a separation of the individuating qualities from the universal, or an induction, that is to say, a bringing together of individuals under a universal image. Quote, Just as in the routed army, one man must stand so as to become the center round which others may group themselves. End quote. It is evident, therefore, that while the intellect does not create the concept, it is active in causing the object to become actually intelligible. There is, however, a subsequent stage in the process. Once the object is rendered intelligible, it impresses itself on the intellect in precisely the same way as the sensible object impresses its species on the senses. The intellect in this second stage of the process is called the passive intellect, nous patheticos, while in the first stage of the process it is called topoyun. It is worthy of remark that although it is usual to speak of the active and passive intellect, Aristotle never speaks of a nous poeticos, always designating the active intellect by means of the present participle. From this it is clear that in Aristotle's psychology there is no room for the doctrine of innate ideas. All knowledge comes through the senses, nothing being innate in the mind except the native power of the active intellect by which it discovers in the concrete and individual the abstract and universal elements of thought contained therein. But what is this active intellect? What is its relation to the psyche, the vital principle in man? These are questions which have vexed the commentators and interpreters of Aristotle from the days of Theophrastus down to our own time. There is even greater difficulty in determining what Aristotle meant by the passive intellect. Where there is so complex a diversity of opinion, it is perhaps hazardous to classify interpretations. Still, it seems that the commentators and interpreters may be included under the heads transcendentalists and anthropologists. Eudemus, Alexander of Aphrodisias, the Arabians of the Middle Ages, and most modern commentators since the time of Hegel, understand the active intellect to mean something apart from, or transcending in some way, the individual soul, while as to the nature of the passive intellect, they are in a state of hopeless confusion. Theophrastus, Philoponus, Themistius, Simplicius, Boethius, and the greater number of the schoolmen understand the active intellect to mean a faculty of the individual soul. While many of the schoolmen identify the passive intellect with the active, making the difference between the two powers to consist merely in a difference between two phases of the same faculty. It will be sufficient here to give the words in which Aristotle describes the active intellect, 
without entering into the question of interpretation. He speaks in De Anima 3, 4, 429a of the intellect as separate and unmixed. In the following chapter, he describes the active intellect as being alone separate, eternal and immortal, 430a. And in De Generatione Animalium 23736b28, he describes it as coming from without, Thurathen, and as divine, Theon. It must, however, be borne in mind that the chapters in which Aristotle enunciates his theory of knowledge are of fragmentary nature, and moreover that this portion of Aristotle's psychological treatise deals with a question which no modern school, with the exception of the transcendentalist school, has attempted to solve. It is therefore not a matter for surprise that in expounding Aristotle, so many modern writers have fallen into the error of interpreting him in the terminology of transcendentalism, thus illustrating the adage, Aristotelem non nisi ex ipso Aristotele intelligis. By reason of its intellectual function, which it performs without intrinsic dependence on the bodily organism, and by which it transcends the conditions of matter, the soul is immaterial and immortal. Aristotle's doctrine of immortality is, however, conditioned by his doctrine of the active intellect. If the active intellect is something separate from the individual soul, an impersonal intellect common to all men, and this is the interpretation followed by Alexander, by the Arabians, and by many modern scholars. It does not appear how Aristotle could hold that the soul is in any true sense of the word endowed with personal immortality. With regard to will, in place of Plato's vague, unsatisfactory notion of thumos, we find the definite concept of boulesis, which may be described as a consilience of reason and desire. Will is rational appetite. It is the desire of good as apprehended by reason. And because it is preceded by a rational apprehension of good, it is free. This view of freedom of choice, proairesis, is supported by the recognized voluntariness of virtue, and by the equally well-recognized fact that man is held accountable for his actions. Reason in its function of suggesting the best means by which an end is to be attained is called practical. Before proceeding, however, to treat of ethics, which is the science of human conduct according to the principles of practical reason, it is necessary to mention the last division of theoretical philosophy, namely mathematics. Lowercase c. Mathematics deals with immovable being, thus differing from physics, which has for its subjects being subject to motion. It differs from metaphysics in this, that it deals with corporeal being under the determination of quantity, while metaphysics has for its object being in general, under its highest determinations, such as act and potency, cause and effect. Uppercase C. Practical philosophy includes the science of political government and organization, as well as the general questions of moral science. 1. The supreme good of man is happiness, 
Of this, no Greek had the least doubt. The word eudaimonia has, however, more of an objective meaning than our word happiness. It is more akin to well-being or welfare. But how is this well-being to be attained? What is it that constitutes happiness? Happiness is determined by the end for which man was made, and the end of human existence is that form of good which is peculiar to man, the good which is proper to a rational being. Now, reason is a prerogative of man. It should, therefore, be the aim of man's existence to live conformably to reason, to live a life of virtue. Nevertheless, Aristotle would not exclude wealth and pleasure from the idea of human happiness, for wealth is necessary for the external manifestation of virtue, and pleasure is the natural reward of a virtuous life. Happiness also includes friendship, health, in a word, all the gifts of fortune. 2. Virtue, while it is not the only constituent of happiness, is the indispensable means of attaining happiness. It is not a mere feeling, but rather a fixed quality or habit of mind, axis. Now, mind must first of all hold the lower functions, and especially the passions, in subjection. And then it must develop its own powers. Thus we have moral virtue and intellectual virtue. Lowercase a. Moral virtue is a certain habit of the faculty of choice, consisting in a mean mesotes, suitable to our nature and fixed by reason in the manner in which a prudent man would fix it. It is a habit, that is, a fixed quality. It consists in a mean between excess and defect. Courage, for example, preserves the mean between cowardice and reckless daring. Virtue, it is true, is impossible without moral insight. Still, we must not identify these two as Socrates did, when he reduced all virtue to knowledge. There are many kinds of virtue, for virtue is a quality of the will, and the defects and excesses to which the will may lead us are many, as will be seen by the following schema. Defect, mean, excess. Defect, cowardice. Mean, courage. Excess, rashness. Defect, insensibility. Mean, temperance, excess, intemperance. Defect, illiberality, mean, liberality, excess, prodigality. Defect, pettiness, mean, munificence, excess, vulgarity. Defect, humble-mindedness, mean, high-mindedness, excess, vaingloriousness. Defect, want of ambition, Mean, right ambition. Excess, over ambition. Defect, spiritlessness. Mean, good temper. Excess, irascibility. Defect, surliness. Mean, friendly civility. Excess, obsequiousness. Defect, ironical deprecation. Mean, sincerity. Excess, boastfulness. Defect, boorishness, mean, wittiness, excess, buffoonery. Defect, shamelessness, mean, modesty, excess, bashfulness. Defect, callousness, mean, 
just resentment, excess, spitefulness. Justice, dikaiusune, in its generic meaning signifies the observance of the right order of all the faculties of man, and in this sense it is synonymous with virtue. In a more restricted sense, justice is the virtue which regulates man's dealings with his fellow men. It is divided into distributive, corrective, and commutative justice. Lowercase b. The intellectual virtues are perfections of the intellect itself, without relation to other faculties. We have 1. The perfections of the scientific reason, namely, understanding, nous, science, episteme, and wisdom, sophia, which are respectively concerned with first principles, demonstration, and the search for highest causes. And 2. The perfections of the practical reason, namely art, which is referred to external actions, poiein, and practical wisdom, which is referred to actions the excellence of which depends on no external result, pratein. The most characteristic of Aristotle's ethical teachings is the superiority which he assigns to intellectual over ethical virtue, and the most serious defect in his ethical system is his failure to refer human action to future reward and punishment. 3. In his political doctrines, Aristotle starts with the principle that man is by nature a social being, politikon zoon, and is forced to depend on the social organization for the attainment of happiness. Man's social life begins in the family, for the family is prior to the state. The state is consequently bound to keep the family intact, and in general its mission is the advancement and development of its subjects, the lifting up of the people by the just administration of law to a higher plane of moral conduct. Aristotle combats the state absolutism of Plato. There are three ultimate forms of government, monarchy, aristocracy, and the republic. The best form of government is that which is best suited to the character of the people, Politica 3.17. Thus, although monarchy is the ideal, the best attainable form seems to be an aristocracy, not of wealth nor of birth, but of intellect, a true aristocracy, a government of the best. Uppercase D. Poetical philosophy. Under this head, Aristotle treats the theory of art. Art, he teaches, is traceable to the spirit of imitation, and consists in the realization of external form of the true idea, a realization which is not limited to mere copying, but extends also to the perfecting of the deficiencies of nature by grouping the individual phenomena under the universal type. History merely copies. Poetry idealizes and completes the work of history. Poetry is more philosophical and more elevated than history. Aristotle's analysis of the beautiful is like Plato's confined to study of the objective constituents of beauty. These he reduces to order and grandeur, which are found especially in moral beauty. So vague and indefinite is this analysis that Aristotle was obliged, as we have seen, to base his theory of art on the realization of the essence, 
without referring art at all to the notion of the beautiful. The aim of art is the calming, purifying and ennobling of the affections. Historical Position It is difficult to form a true estimate of Aristotle's philosophy, and the difficulty arises, strange as this may seem, from our too great familiarity with many of the notions which Aristotle introduced into human science. The basic ideas of his philosophical system have become the commonplaces of elementary education. They have found their way into the vocabulary of our everyday life, and have impressed themselves indelibly on the literature of Western civilization. The terminology, the invention of which is one of Aristotle's chief titles to preeminence, has become indissolubly associated with the exposition of Christian theology, and forms, so to speak, the alphabet of our catechetical instructions. All this has made it difficult for the modern reader to appreciate the importance of Aristotle's contributions to philosophy, consueta velescunt. It is necessary, therefore, to forget how familiar many of Aristotle's discoveries have become, to go back in imagination to the time when they were first enunciated, and in this way to realize, if we can, the breadth and depth of a mind that could succeed in accomplishing such a vast amount of original work as to entitle him to be considered the founder of logic, the author of the first treatise on scientific psychology, the first natural historian, and the father of the biological sciences. Placing ourselves at this point of view, we shall be less inclined to single out the undeniable defects of Aristotle's philosophy, finding it a more natural as well as a more congenial task to compare Aristotle with his predecessors in the history of Greek speculation. Aristotle's philosophy is the synthesis and culmination of the speculations of pre-Socratic and Socratic schools. His doctrine of causes is an epitome of all that Greek philosophy had up to his time accomplished. But it is especially with Plato, his master, that Aristotle is to be compared, and it is by his additions to Platonic teaching that he is to be judged. Plato built out of the ruins of pre-Socratic speculation a complete metaphysical structure according to a definite plan, a structure beautiful in its outlines, perfect in its symmetry, but insecure and unstable, like one of those golden palaces of fairyland which we fear to approach and examine lest it vanish into airy nothingness. Aristotle, on the contrary, drew his plan with a firmer hand. He laid the foundation of his philosophy deep on the rock bottom of experience, and although all the joints in the fabric are not equally secure, the care and consistency with which the design is executed are apparent to every observer. It was left for scholastic philosophy to add the pinnacle to the structure which Aristotle had carried as far towards completion as human thought could build unaided. If Plato has been called the sublime, Aristotle must be called the profound, a title which, when applied to a philosopher, should be the expression of higher praise, for wisdom is oft times nearer when we stoop than when we soar. End of chapter 11